In the fourth century, Jerome, Christian scholar, lived in Palestine, a co-laborer with Augustine, did something amazing for the church. He translated the Hebrew and the Greek uh, portions of the Bible into Latin, called it the Vulgate, which is simply a Latin term for meaning common. He translated the Bible into the common language of Western readers. And the Vulgate has been used uh, by the church for a millennia and a half, continues to be used. It was tremendously influential. In our text this morning from John chapter 19, there is a phrase translated in Latin, ecce homo, meaning behold the man that has been used by unbelievers and believers for centuries and centuries. Unbelievers have used that phrase in mocking derision of Christ. Behold the man. Contrarywise, Christians have used that same phrase in majestic devotion of the Christ. Behold the man. The God-man who condescended to earth, who identified with us, who became the substitutionary sacrifice, winning our redemption. At first read of the passion of our Lord Jesus, we are suffocated by the injustice and the abuse he suffered. But that was necessary. Necessary in order to win our redemption. And this fact is something that we cannot miss. Jesus, in this role as the substitute, as the one who was abused, suffered injustice. He was never the victim. Never was the victim. With purpose and intention, Jesus willingly, actively yielded up his life in this manner. Because redemption demanded it and his love for his people motivated him to give of himself in this holy way. John chapter 10, verse 17. Jesus says, I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. 
this act of Jesus enduring hostility against himself was divinely sovereignly scripted in the book of Acts chapter 2 the first sermon just weeks after Jesus death and resurrection Peter said this chapter 2 verse 23 this man speaking of, de- of, of Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God chapter 3 Peter's second sermon verse 18 the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer he has thus fulfilled Acts chapter 4 the prayer of the believers in the face of persecution and suffering that they were enduring verse 27 for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur the suffering of Jesus the affliction of Jesus the injustice foist upon Jesus was sovereignly scripted it had to take place it was predetermined But that does not mean that those who were instrumental in the suffering and the death of Christ were thereby somehow absolved of their responsibility because God had had scripted the whole series of events. No, they too were responsible for their actions. Turning back again to Acts chapter 2, Peter's message let me read the fullness of verse 23 this man delivered over by the predetermined plan or foreknowledge of God you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death here we have God's sovereignty and man's responsibility gloriously married together inseparably so This morning as we take yet another look at the passion of our Lord Jesus the suffering of injustice and abuse that he endured I direct your attention to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 3 Uh, it is my prayer that this would be kind of an overarching verse that you would you would read and understand and appreciate more deeply the work of Christ on your behalf as a believer with this in mind Hebrews chapter 12 verse 3 consider him consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart Our text this morning begins again in John chapter 18 with the so-called political trial 
of our Lord Jesus. He stood before the Roman governor Pilate, and Pilate asked him as he entered the Praetorium, verse 33 of John 18, Are you the king of the Jews? And in this brief conversation that Jesus had with Pilate, we find that Jesus responds with these words. I will begin reading again at verse 36 and we'll continue into chapter 19. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Peter said, uh, Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born. And for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at Passover. Do you then want me to release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Chapter 19. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come out to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews! And to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man! So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. In this text that I just finished reading, we find three times Pilate declaring, I find no guilt in him. He makes that pronouncement three times. But each time, he does something to undo what he just said. He inflicts greater punishment, greater grief, greater mocking of our Lord even in the face of this declaration, I find no fault in him. 
He is not guilty. I hereby acquit him. Now the charge that Pilate heard after pressing the Jewish leadership, you remember from our time last week, Luke records it. Jesus, or rather the the religious leaders, accused Jesus of three things. Luke chapter 23, verse 2, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. They charged him with rebellion, insurrection. They charged him, secondly, with tax evasion. And thirdly, they charged him with being at odds, in conflict with, against the emperor, against Caesar. Now, Pilate is not a stupid, foolish man. Uh, Let me take that back. He is stupid and foolish. But in this particular sense, he was um, able to see through the smoke that the religious leaders were blowing in his face. He saw through their chicanery. And he understood, no, this guy is not a rebel. He's not an insurrectionist. He's probably not a tax evader. But it was this other charge that he was um, in conflict with the emperor. That's what captured Pilate's attention. And he gave some attention to that particular charge. Are you the king of the Jews, he inquired. Well, as we read in, in the text, he, he, was, um, he, he, was, he was not sure, he asked, he inquired. Um, at the end of their conversation, Pilate is, is um, certainly not understanding who Jesus is as a king, not understanding his understanding of kingdom, but he knows this. He's not a threat to Caesar. And so he makes his pronouncement. I find no fault in this man. Now in our text, in John chapter 18, that statement by Pilate, uh, that statement of acquittal, um, is followed by Verse 39, but in between verses 38 and 39, Pilate sends Jesus to another leader. Let me read you Luke's account. He gives us uh, some different information. Not that John is incorrect, John is writing after, long after, Luke has finished his gospel record. And that gospel record is widely distributed. So John is giving us supplemental information. He is assuming that his readers know the details in Luke's gospel, for example. 
Back in Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, I read verse 2 just a moment ago. I'm going to start with verse 4. Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in the man. There's the statement again. But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. When Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was in Jerusalem at the time. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but he, that is Jesus, answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him, in, accusing him vehemently. And Herod, was, uh, and Herod with his, his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. So on hearing that Jesus was from Galilee, Pilate is thinking, I am looking for a way out. Okay, he's made, he's made the declaration. I find no guilt in the man. What would his responsibility as a governmental leader have been at that point? He would have been responsible to release him. You cannot hold an innocent man you would have expected him to have been protected by the government because of the the vehemence the the vitriol with which the accusers came after jesus and you would expect him to disperse the jews gentlemen you don't have a case you have claimed that he is a king i have examined him he is no threat to our nation. Now get out of here. And I'm going to protect this man. He is no longer going to be in chains. That should have been his duty. That was his duty, his God-given responsibility. But he shirked that. He didn't want to go there. And so as soon as he heard that Jesus was from Galilee, he said, oh, <laughs> that's a good idea. I'm going to send him to Herod. So he sent him to Herod. Herod questioned him extensively, and Jesus stood there. He took it. He said nothing. He did nothing. Herod was looking for some entertainment. He was looking for a magic show. Oh, I've always wanted to see you, you know, walk on water, create something out of nothing like 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 lunch for this afternoon go ahead jesus jesus did nothing said nothing so herod being the party boy that he was made his own entertainment and they made jesus into a paper doll dressed him in a robe
sent him back to Pilate. Herod did nothing. And now the monkey was back on Herod's, or Pilate's back. Um, what was he going to do? Okay, here's where um, verse 39 comes in, in our text. You have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? Now, at this point, Pilate presents to the, 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 the religious leaders and the Jewish crowd that is growing at this point. He, he, he places two people before them. Let me explain what's going on here. There, there was evidently a custom in this day um, for the Jews to receive one of their own who was being held as a political prisoner. Now, there is no extra-biblical, that is, outside of the Bible, there, there is no extra-biblical evidence of this custom. There is a cryptic reference to this kind of thing in the Mishnah, second century um, uh, Jewish document. Um, but, but, but it's cryptic at best. We, we really have only the scriptures to, to go on to, uh, to, to, to verify that there was this custom, but there's no explanation of, of how did this come about and, 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 and what, was, what was being done here. There are those that think that it had its origination at the Passover to be a picture of God's release of his people from Egyptian captivity. And here the Romans, in order to placate the Jews, gave back one of the political prisoners um, so that they could be reunited with their family and their friends and their hometown and, and their country. It was an act of goodwill on the part of the Romans. But this particular year, Pilate put before them two people. Jesus, the Nazarene, and another man by the name of Barabbas. History tells us that his full name was Jesus Bar-Abbas. Think about this. When a Jew would be identified um, formerly, uh, formally, they would be identified with their ancestry, specifically their father. We talk about Peter sometimes as, as being noted as uh, Simon Bar-Jonah. That is, Simon, Simon Peter, uh, son of Bar-Jonah. So his dad's name was Jonah. All right? If tradition is correct, this particular man, presented by Pilate, Judas Bar-Abbas, is Jesus, son of Abba. Now, you may, have, may be familiar with the uh, Aramaic term Abba. It shows up in Scripture. It's, it's the familiar, intimate uh, Aramaic name for father. 
So, interestingly, these are the two people that Pilate placed before this group of people wanting to know, who do you want me to release? I'm giving you an option, a choice this year. Do you want me to release to you Jesus Barabba? Jesus, a son or the son of a father, or do you want me to release to you Jesus of Nazareth, the son of the father? Now, we need to know a little bit more about this character, Barabbas, Bar-Abbas. Matthew and Mark tell us that he was convicted of insurrection and murder. He was a rebel. He was a troublemaker. He was one who actively took the life of at least another person. John adds that he was a robber. He was a convicted thief. Matthew uh, refers to him as a, quote-unquote, notorious prisoner. Now, in our day and age, we have another word, another single word that would encapsulate all of these descriptors that I've just used. We might say that Barabbas was a terrorist. And so here's the, here, here's the option that Pilate gave to this crowd. Do you want me to release to you to walk on the, the streets of your town this terrorist named Barabbas, or would you rather have me release to you Jesus the Nazarene? You see, in, in Pilate's twisted mind, he, he, he's found no fault with Jesus. Um, but he's got this group of people in front of him that could riot, could cause all kinds of mayhem, and that would not look good on his resume. He was more interested in his job than he was in justice. He was more interested in placating the Jews than in protecting the innocent. And so he sent Jesus to Herod, hoping that he, Herod would do something and, and take him out of Pilate's hands. That, did, that, that didn't work. Okay, well, if I place before them one really, really bad guy, and Jesus, who has done nothing criminal at all, certainly they're going to cho choose the guy that is is going to uh, be safe in their streets. They're going to allow their, 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 their teenage daughter to be out on the streets if Jesus the Nazarene is walking around, but certainly not if Barabbas is walking around. So Pilate thinks, I, I know who they're going to choose this year. But they do not choose Jesus the Nazarene. They cried out again, verse 40, not this man, speaking of Jesus before them, but Barabbas. Okay, 
Um, Pilate is now in a quandary. Um, I don't know what to do. He's declared Jesus innocence, sent him to Herod, that didn't work. Tried to just get Jesus released, that didn't work. Matthew tells us that there is another person who is involved at this point. Matthew chapter 27, verse 19, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, Pilate's wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But he ignored his wife, did not heed her counsel or the note that she scribbled and placed in his hands. He had a difficult choice and chose the wrong choice. Second page of your notes. So Pilate chooses to do something else. Again, in in hopeful anticipation that this, this monkey is going to get off of his back and somehow he can free an innocent man and yet at the same time not incur the wrath of the crowd standing before him. Verse 1 of chapter 19. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. Now some translations, NIV in particular, uses the word flog. So Pilate, even though Jesus is an innocent man, punishes him by flogging him. Better, by scourging him. Now again, there, sometimes in, in the English language there are, there are connotations to words. There, there is meaning that is embedded in the word, kind of hidden in the word, hinted at. It's, it, it's as though there is a fragrance that comes with that word so that, so that you have a, a, a deeper, a better understanding of how that particular word is used and what it can mean. When I use the word flog or flogging, um, we, we, we might speak of, of a, a more humane whipping. Now, the Jews used this kind of, of punishment, Deuteronomy chapter 25. There were certain kinds of crimes that required this kind of punishment, a flogging, a whipping. And there in Deuteronomy 25, the whipping is, is restricted to 40 lashes. Now, in practice, the Jews only allowed a... Um, uh, a guilty party to be, uh, be, be flogged or uh, lashed 39 times in case there was a miscounting. And we see that exacted on the back of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, but the Romans were not restricted to anything like this. And, and they uh, practice a a very inhumane type of flogging. 
And I think the word scourging is a bit better to describe and with its connotations uh, to describe what happened to Jesus. Let me describe it. When a, an individual was about to be scourged, they would be tied to a pole. Their legs would be tied to a pole so that they could not move, and they would be bent at the waist, oftentimes over a crossbar of some sort, so that they would stay in place. Their hands would be placed above their head, and then their hands tied to a post in front of them so that their back was exposed and they, they, their, their back was in a horizontal line. The soldier that was in charge of the scourging called a lictor would have had a flagellum in his hand, a wooden stick to which were tied um, different leather straps of varying lengths. And at the end of each of these straps, there were tied rocks or sharp pieces of metal or sharp pieces of bone. Lichter would stand at the side of the person, uh, presumably a convicted criminal, and he would throw the flagellum. The straps would hit the back, the neck, the head of the individual, wrap around that person, and then as the lictor pulled that back, the, uh, the, the rocks that were tied there would have bruised the individual, and the sharp pieces of metal and broken bones would have opened up the skin. Repeatedly, this happened. It stopped when the commander said stop, or when the lictor got too tired, or when the person that was being scourged died, which was not uncommon. Because in this process, not only was the skin torn, but quite often major organs were exposed and sometimes ruptured. It was brutal. It was gross. It was inhumane. Question. Why? Why did Pilate have Jesus scourged if indeed he was declared innocent? Let me give you two reasons. First, it was sovereignly scripted. We find in the pages of the prophetic scriptures testimony to the fact that Messiah would be scourged. Psalm chapter 22. David wrote, a thousand years before Jesus was born. In this messianic psalm, he said, Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count 
all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. 700 years before Jesus was born, we read this of Messiah from the pen of Isaiah. His appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. He was despised and forsaken of men, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. It was divinely scripted that Messiah would suffer in this manner and that he would willingly, actively yield his body for this kind of inhumane abuse. Now that doesn't mean that Pilate and company were absolved of any wrongdoing because it was divinely scripted. No, indeed, they have been, are being, and will be held accountable for all eternity. But, secondly, from a human point of view, to answer the question, why did Pilate have Jesus scourged, one whom he declared innocent, from a human point of view, Pilate was trying to walk a fine line. He wanted to release Jesus alive, but at the same time, he wanted to placate the Jews who wanted Jesus dead. And he was trying to uh, walk this fine line, thinking, if I punish him as if he were guilty, then they'll be satisfied. At this point, Pilate allows his men to have their way with Jesus. Back in our text, chapter 19, verse 2, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. It's just another level of pain and suffering for Jesus. And they put a purple robe on him. No doubt this was uh, an old and soon-to-be-discarded officer's cloak. That was the impromptu royal robe of Jesus. And then verse 3, they began to come to him as if in, in some kind of royal procession and say, Hail, King of the Jews! But rather than kissing the ring, they slapped him in the face. The other synoptic gospel writers tell us that they, they bowed before Jesus and then spit on him. 
Pilate said again, coming out to the crowd, I am bringing him out so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. A second time, he declares to the Jews, Jesus is innocent. He's not this bad, terrible, horrible, no good, very bad guy that you, that you claim him to be. He is not worthy of death. Though Pilate is certainly participating in the mockery and the abuse of our Lord. Well, for a third time, we've, we've looked at two of the pronouncements that Jesus makes. Now, for a third time, he makes the very same pronouncement. We find it in verse 6. And here, he parades Jesus in front of the crowd. He has been in the praetorium, and from that place, the Jews outside, remember they refused to walk into this um, this, these Jewish, uh, these Gentile quarters, uh, because they didn't want to uh, sully themselves. They didn't want to make themselves unclean so they couldn't have dinner that night from inside the praetorium. They heard the scourging. They heard the mocking of the soldiers. They heard their derisive smut uttered to the Lord Jesus. And now, verse 5, they see him. He would have been unrecognizable as you compared him with what happened uh, uh, when he went into the praetorium. His face, his torso, his legs were bruised, swollen, bleeding profusely. And here he was with this crown of thorns and this purple cloak around him. Jesus came out. People said, Pilate said to them, Behold the man. It was in, in, in many respects a, 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 a derisive statement against Jesus. He was poking at the Jews. He was taunting them, making fun of them. He was saying, okay, <laughs> this is your guy. This is your king. Look at him. He's a threat to nobody. He can do nothing. This one is absolutely broken, humiliated, defeated. Here's your guy. You happy? Now it was at this point that Peter, uh, rather Pilate, thought that the Jews would say, okay, you've beat him up enough. You've humiliated him enough. Pilate was counting on the fact that seeing the blood 
streaming down Jesus' body would have satisfied the bloodthirsty lusts of the Jews for his death. <laughs> no, not at all. It's like one drop of blood is not going to satisfy a shark. He's going to want more. Lutheran scholar Lenski wrote, A wild beast cannot be placated by showing it blood. To do so only enrages it more. Verse 6. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify! Crucify! They doubled down. They insisted on nothing less than Jesus' death. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Pilate is taking his hand off of the steering wheel. He is, he is trying to distance himself from any responsibility. He can't. He's, 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 he's not able to give the Jews the ability to crucify anyone. He knows that. And again, he's, he's, he's taunting them. You want to do this? You want this man executed? Well, you're going to have to do it yourself. Well, as we will find out next week, they will, they will blackmail him. They will threaten him. And Pilate, the weak man that he was, will capitulate and do as the Jews desired. Conclusion. I want to read you the testimony of, of a um, Wycliffe Bible translator. He begins with this question as he relates this particular event in his ministry. Here's the question. How could villagers in a Papua New Guinean rainforest grasp what it meant to flog or scourge someone? As our translation team was gathered one day, we became mired in a passage in Mark 10 where Jesus predicted what was about to happen to him. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock, who will who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. We were stuck, the missionary continued. I didn't have a word for the word flog. What do you call it, I asked the translation team. If someone hits another, say an, an enemy, with something like a rope, that drew a blank. 
Apparently, hitting someone with a rope was nothing that sounded familiar to them. But it was about to happen to Jesus, and it was part of the passage, so I I cast about for other ways to describe it. My eyes fell on a piece of vine left over from tying the thatch on the roof. It was lying on the old wood stove. The vine was about three feet long, and I, I instructed the men to imagine the vine was a piece of rope, and the wood stove was the back of Jesus. Then with all my might, I started beating the iron stovetop. Immediately, Oarapi Ali, his eyes wild and his nostrils flaring, shouted out, that's not hitting with a rope, that's Focoso Strapo. He was indignant, staring at me from his place on the floor. Focoso Strapo. I wrote the words down. Tell me more about this, I said. And when I looked up, they were all just, just staring at me. It was as if I had taken them right back to the old days of revenge and bloodshed. Wait a minute, someone said. Do you mean that they did that to Jesus? But here, he just said that they were going to do it. Did they really do it to him? Quiet filled on the room as I answered. Yes. Finally, Aliki Wu Ali said, We used to do that. But we only did it to our enemies and then just before we were going to kill them. Yes, I said. And that's coming too. They hung their heads. In the corners of the room, the large shell earrings of the old men began swinging back and forth in stunned sadness. The memory of Focoso Strapo, floggings, was too fresh in their minds. They were still seeing a deeper they were seeing a deeper vision of the awful cruelty, the, the enormity of it all, than I had ever understood. And that this would happen to Jesus, someone they had grown to respect and like. He was, he was a man who would put little children on his lap, who would reach out and heal those in need. These men knew what torturing and flogging were all about. Jesus would come to suffer like this was too much to take in. We had to stop work for the morning. They couldn't continue. Martin Luther wrote, Jesus became the greatest liar, thief, 
adulterer, murderer that mankind has ever known. Not because he committed these sins, but because he was actually made sin for us. Referring to 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Jesus was disfigured to the point of being unrecognizable. He was bruised. He was bloodied. Not because he deserved it. No, he was innocent. But because he was bearing our sin. Your sin. My sin. The poet wrote, we, we may not know, we cannot tell what pains he had to bear, but we believe it was for us he hung and suffered there. Behold the man. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you would not grow weary and lose heart. Father, words are so inadequate to express our thanksgiving for what the Lord Jesus has done on our behalf. We will spend all of eternity grasping, seeking to understand the mind of the divine that would send Christ into this corrupt world and willingly, actively endure hostility from sinners to win our redemption, to bring us strength, to bring us hope. But we say it all over again, and repeatedly so. Thank you, our blessed Father. And it is in your holy, righteous, perfect name that we pray.